Hello, I'm Sean Baker, Festival and Creative Director of Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, and this is the Readers and Writers Podcast. This special episode was recorded live at this year's festival and hosted in partnership with our friends at the glorious Voyager Estate here in Margaret River. Voyager Estate was established in 1978 and is steeped in a rich history of winemaking. One of Australia's most innovative producers of world-class Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon, all their wines are 100% estate grown and reflect the unique qualities of this wonderful region. So sit back, maybe grab a glass of Voyager Estate, relax and join this incredible conversation with climate warrior Bob Brown and the indomitable Jane Caro. Good evening everyone. Here we are in this wonderful place uh, about to speak to, um, well I think one of our modern heroes, um, a national living treasure. who has saved a few living treasures, in fact, in his time, including, of course, the Franklin and Gordon Rivers in his home state of Tasmania. Um, yes, he had a little bit of help, but he um, definitely was an incredibly important part of that. Um, and I almost don't need to name him, but I shall. Dr Bob Brown, of course. Can we welcome Bob Brown? Now, Bob's here to uh, promote his wonderful book, Planet Earth, um, and I recommend you get a copy. It's inspiring, it's beautiful, um, and it's well worth having um, by your bedside, on your bookshelf, um, and to refer to at various times. Perhaps, particularly if you feel a bit down, I'd go look at Planet Earth, because it does make you feel a lot better. Um, I've got a quick story I want to tell about Bob Brown because I had an experience recently. I was lucky enough to go down to one of Bob's major projects not far from here, just south of Albany, uh, Red Mort um, Station, I think it's called, and uh, it's part of the Bush Heritage uh, Movement where clapped out farmland is being bought, money is raised, by Bush Heritage, this is all Bob's uh, basic idea originally, am I right? At the start, uh, 30 years ago, yes. 30 years ago. Nevertheless, it's still going. How many people here have had ideas 30 years ago that are still going? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, yes, yes. Heather does, of course, the Margaret River Writers Festival is one. The lady here, what's yours? Margaret, there you go. Okay, Margaret River's Writers Festival and and Bush Heritage. There you go, that's it. They're the only ones in the room. Um, and I went down to um, stay there and, and write an article for, about Bush Heritage. And they said to me, as they talked me into the bedroom in this beautiful um, open to the elements kind of station house, oh, and by the way, you're very privileged because you will be sleeping in Bob Brown's bed. <laughs> So it's on my CV that I have slept in Bob Brown's bed. Just, I'm very proud of that. Um, Don't tell Paul. No, no, that's right. I mustn't tell Paul. Um, we may as well start with Bush Heritage. Okay, it's an idea you had 30 years ago. But tell us, tell us about why you had that idea and what it was about taking clapped out farmland, buying it, not, you know, via donations and things like that, to bring it back to the way 
it would have been if we just left it alone in the first place. Well, thanks, Jane. Thanks, everybody. Uh, well, uh, force of circumstance. I was living in the Lippi Valley under Taititikatika, which is a, a mountain higher than Mount Wellington. Three Empire State buildings above the little cottage I had with the Telepanga River going by. And a couple of blocks of forest up the top end and bottom end of the valley came up for sale. A sawmiller was retiring. And I knew if I didn't buy them, they were going to be clear felled for wood chipping, export wood chips. So uh, I'd just come back from America where due to the Franklin campaign and everybody who took part in it, I was given a $40,000 Goldman environmental prize. Um, and I felt a bit embarrassed about having this money. But um, I thought, well, maybe I could put a deposit on those blocks of land. I got a friend to go and bid at the auction. He rang me up that night and said, yes, Bob, I've bought both blocks for you for $250,000. <laughs> and two things came out of that chain. The first was Bush Heritage, because uh, I could pay the deposit but didn't have the rest of the money. And with friends we set up, we appealed to, um, to get money to save these little blocks. And from that, we later bought a fan farm uh, block of land in the Daintree in North Queensland. And now, of course, there's uh, West Australia's uh, must be a, close to a million hectares here in the, the stations to the north, including Hamblin uh, at Shark Bay and, and Redmort, the, little, the connectivity which is being established with other groups, including Greening Australia here in southern uh, Western Australia. And I've already forgotten the second thing I was going to say that came out of that, but um, uh, that's how Bush Heritage got underway. It, it, uh, I heard about the Nature Conservancy, which is the biggest conservation organisation in terms of making money in America, and I patented on, on that. And uh, so Bush Heritage, uh, I've had... Uh, when I went into the Senate in 1995, I ceased being the president of Bush Heritage and they got um, a couple of women in to take on that job and then other people and it boomed. As soon as I left it went warm, off it went. <laughs> and so now it's got, uh, it's looking, it's got a million hectares of its own and it's got uh, helping Aboriginal people looking after five million other hectares of, of Australia in a country that very badly needs looking after in this age of mass extinction. Mm. and. Um, uh, not least the onrush of the climate emergency. Which brings us to why, to one of the things we were talking about earlier around the table and last night, which is that governments, particularly in Australia, seem to be dragging their heels on this. And what's happened... Seem to be. It, well, <laughs> true. I was being nice. That's not like me. I don't know what's happened. Uh, anyway, um, but... They're dragging their heels on this. And so what in a way is happening is people like you, um, others who are um, business, for example, are stepping into that vacuum that's been created by um, what seems to be an almost um, a stubborn refusal by government in this country to take things seriously. That's sort of hopeful in one way but it always worries me when we rely on business or philanthropy or anything like that uh, for what ought to be um, much more about, particularly in a democracy, 
at what our elected government should be taking responsibility for. Yeah, well, Jane, there's two things here. Firstly, um, private enterprise uh, can't purchase public lands and had a wonderful, Paul and I had a wonderful morning tea today with the Nanas for Forests, uh, who, uh, uh, there was 20 or 30 women, a couple of men there as well today, who are um, taking action to protect the publicly owned forests from destruction here in South West Western Australia, and this is happening elsewhere. And amongst other things, it's strip mining by some mining companies that's removing Jarrah forests to be burnt to make coke to export. Uh, but with that, that mining goes the, all the wildlife, the owls, the cockatoos, the, the habitat. And uh, goodness, a, a group of these um, women went and sat on their, on their miling, mining pile, all got arrested and, and fined $500 for doing the job the government should be doing, which is protecting all of the native forests that are left in a, in a state that's lost 90% of them. Uh, it's, uh, you know, that's just how it should be. <laughs> However, uh, the other side of it is philanthropy can help with private lands, but it shouldn't be. It should be government that's doing it again. And where governments allow for wood clearance, and actually the Minister for the Environment in this state, in my home state, uh, Susan Lee, the Minister for the Environment federally, I mean, she was on with Fran uh, earlier in the week, this, this last week, uh, talking about swift parrots. Now that's one on, on my lapel. We thought there were 2,000, there used to be hundreds of thousands. The first one uh, was drawn, the uh, first one um, since the invasion was drawn in Sydney in, 18, in 1797. Uh, but there were flocks between there and South Australia and they flew to Tasmania to nest and breed in the southeast coast in summer. Well now we thought there were 2,000 left. Uh, Australian National University assessment at the end of last year, there's 300. And my organisation, my foundation says, oh Bob, uh, we've just looked at the northeast forests in Tasmania close to the coast and they're actually logging where the birds are feeding and presumably nesting. So I went up there and um, got hauled off to the police station a couple of times, like the local nanas here, uh, and face the magistrate's court next month and um, feel that that should be the job of government. Now where it, Susan lays on there talking to Fran and saying, uh, oh, I've come out to Canberra to see the swift parrots in the forest. These are the, what's left that got back to the mainland after, under her watch, they logged in, in flattened and then incinerated, dropping napalm from helicopters, hundreds of hectares of swift parrot habitat this summer as that bird's driven to extinction. This is the fastest bird on earth. You know, it takes the ferry all night to cross from the mainland to Tasmania. These birds do it in three hours. And, um, no, I can't say that, but um, they, t they talk a lot. Oh, you can. They, they talk a lot. Uh, and they, they're just the most scintillating, uh, anodyne green little birds with bits of red and flecks of blue. And uh, we've got the Minister for the Environment at, at state and federal level, and this is happening here in Western Australia as well, ticking off on destructive processes that um, foster the extinction, but then going on radio, and, and she said, 
by the way, Fran, the Samuel Report, which is the great report reviewing environmental legislation, and Mr Samuel, a businessman, found that Australia's environment is in a parlous state and uh, increasing numbers of creatures are being driven to extinction by what we're doing. The Minister says, oh Fran, I've adopted the two main rec recommendations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the day that report came out last year, Susan Lee, the most powerful environmentalist in Australia, came straight out with a press conference at 11am in Canberra and said, I am not going to adopt his principal report, which is that there be a national environmental police force. Cop on the beat, Mr Samuel said. And she said, I won't do that. Here we are a few months later, and she's saying to the ABC, I adopted his main recommendations, and she's not getting any question about it. And I, I thought, well, uh, I'll be back out in the forest this summer when those birds are out down there. And in the meantime, we've elected a government which is going to lock people up who do that, second time, for four years. You face four years in jail. And we, we've got this international... will be force-feeding them soon. Yep, international movement. You can't win the argument on the environment, these politicians know, and, and the people behind them. So take out the environmentalist. Take out their argument. Lock them up. Vilify them. Uh, we are regularly called um, radical extremists by the minister down there. I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, was. And, and, and <laughs> you know... Oh, but, uh, but, but Bob, it, you are a radical extremist. You told me over dinner that you came out of jail one day and entered the Tasmanian Parliament the next. You must yeah. be the only politician who's done that. Though, mind you, I do wish or do expect that one of these days some of them will come out of Parliament one day and be in jail the next. Well... Uh, we had the phenomenon of a politician in Tasmania, uh, Mr Brooks, who this week was elected uh, and one day and resigned the next after people traced his doings on a oh, uh, yes. dating... Oh, I read about him. Uh, yes. Quite uh, the lad. The Premier endorsed him on the first day of the election because he was popular. His popularity fell off somewhat during the election campaign, but he still got elected and now he's resigned again. Um, allegations that he has a Victorian driver's licence, which he didn't get. Um, I don't know. Uh, I might see him in Ristin after we um, <laughs> get booked. Who can tell? <laughs> that is quite shocking about the four-year jail sentence being threatened, though. I, and, and, Jane, the penalty in Tasmania for going into your next-door neighbour's house with a shotgun and terrorising the family is a maximum one year in jail. That just shows the disproportion of what's going on here. It also shows actually something else which is quite weirdly encouraging, that this government is terrified of environmentalists. Because you would only want to have that kind of draconian punishment if you're really, as you say, running out of any other uh, device for stopping in a way the freight train of um, the change in the the temperature around the environment <coughs> and climate change that is happening all over the world, that these few, and I'm going to say apologies to members of this particular group 
in um, Australia. I know that those of you here who fit this description clearly are the exceptions that prove the rule. These few old white men who are standing stubbornly against, you know, the science, the evidence of our own eyes, the experience that everybody's had in Australia over the last four years, a few years, the, the um, droughts, the fires, the floods, the mice, the plague, all of which um, are the things that were predicted to happen, and yet they stand there denying or at least delaying, uh, as you said, dragging their heels and refusing to act. Well, there's, a, there's another component to this, and I've just seen it happen here in Western Australia and in Tasmania, uh, and at the federal election in, in 2019, in this wonderful nation of ours, 90% of people voted for candidates who want more coal mines, who want more gas fracking, who want to extend logging of the habitat of rare and endangered species, who want to extend industrial fish farming into the oceans, where we know it's um, Richard Flanagan's recent book on toxic, called Toxic, I would recommend to every avid eater of Tasmanian Atlantic salmon, mm. so that you can eat it honestly in future. Uh, but they know, that's, we, we all know this is the case, but we keep voting for them. I, um, uh, we have to put the environment, Jane, up where we've always put the economy and we have to stop being bribed in, on the eve of election by uh, emoluments and, and uh, quick tax fixes and whatever it might be. Uh, and we have to, and the Nanas for Forest sang us their anthem this morning and in that is a line which says we stand for our children. And you either stand for them or you stand against And the world is in parlous trouble. Mm -hmm. And as David Suzuki quoted a scientist who I don't um, endorse, but uh, who says it's all over by 2030. But there are very reputable scientists now who are telling us that the world's population currently, 8 billion, headed for 11.2 billion on best UN estimates, will in fact be 1 billion at the end of this century. Now, we're bequeathing to our children a rush for the last of resources in an exhausted planet on which we're using at the moment 170% of the living resources of this planet. So get that, we're using two planets worth of living resources. So every morning we wake up, Jane, to less forests, fewer species, less arable land, more fisheries in collapse, 90% of them are unsustainable at the moment, and so on, and more, more mouths to feed. And yet, the great God at the centre of all this is the God of growth. We must have more. Uh, and Harvey Norman's made a killing out of the money that's been put back into the public arena uh, because they know that we're hooked on stuff. And until we stop that, the planet can't stand it and will extrude us. Yeah. And it's, it's up to us sentient beings to say, we're going to get out of the comfort zone and do something about that, hence standing out in the forest. And I, but there is a, a factor that's very, very important here, and I spoke about, I think, this briefly last night. It is like the 1960s mm. to me. I came onto this planet in 1944, 
And there's something moving amongst young people, and it's, it, it's exemplified in Greta Thunberg, uh, that brilliant young exemplar of the intelligent uh, brain of humanity understanding the dilemma and that we can fix it. The onus is on us. Mm. And uh, we can, uh, but we're not going to if we keep endorsing people. It uh, doesn't matter what party, uh, 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 who, who have at the centre of the future of this country and this planet growth, the use of even more of our resources. We can have growth of a different kind and central to it is the arts and creativity which doesn't destroy use huge resources. But we have to change this obsession with more goods and uh, we're not making a fist of that at the moment. We keep endorsing people who want to keep promoting rather than altering that fatal paradigm that's in charge at the moment. It's interesting, yeah, I think that this is. <laughs> it's interesting that last night we were talking at the launch, for those of you who weren't there, of the festival, about um, the thing that perhaps COVID has given us, uh, although it's taken much, including 900 Australians' lives and many more lives all over the world, but one of the things it gave us was time. A lot of people found, some people were busier than ever, if you were a health worker, for example. Um, but for a lot of people in forced lockdowns, you know, having to be away from work, etc., the thing that was came with that was time, a sort of slowing down, uh, uh, um, having the time to look at nature, to be in nature, to be part of it, to, if you, uh, even if it was only an hour's walk, for a day, but it was the big escape and people reading things they hadn't read, had time to read and all that kind of thing. Do you think that this enforced, in a way, slowdown that this pandemic has created worldwide will start to get us to realise that we don't constantly have to get faster because it's not just about growth, it's also about this treadmill that keeps ramping up, that everything always gets more and more. We're like, um, we're like those poor rats that are always chasing the little thing that's just a little <laughs> bit ahead of them and it keeps pulling further and further away no matter how fast they run. Do you think there's a little glimmer of hope in that we got off for a little while? The, the short answer to it is no, but the longer answer is that, yes, yeah. it has given us time to be reflective uh, and, and to take some stock, and not least of the fact that there are more pestilences coming like that one, which so many people predicted, including Obama in 2016, like the COVID, the one we have at the moment, mm. which is way from being finished with us. Uh, and to reflect, and, and you know, ostensibly coming out of the abuse of nature anyway. We're just part of this fabulous little planet, which, so far as we know, is the only one in the universe of billions, hundreds of billions of planets, which has life and love and laughter. And uh, we, we may find others. Uh, and fortunately they'll be too far away for us to exploit for centuries to come. <laughs> but uh, there may be others, we don't know. What we do know is this is the only one uh, at this point of our state of knowledge. 
and it is ours to get back into order because we've got nowhere else we can go and, and uh, all of the hopes of humanity are depending upon us making a stand now. And that again is where the bright-eyed young women and men I see stepping onto the footpath who want to take action and you know they've got the next school strike and all of us are still at school next Friday. Uh, is going to change to a revolution with millions of people in the streets if we don't alter the course we're taking. And COVID is curious because... I'll, I'll just have a look over here for a moment. Yes. We just had a, a little medical emergency. Just a moment, everyone. Our friend's in good hands. Okay. Um, are you happy for us to continue, or should we just pause? I think what for a we moment? might do is uh, let's let's have a ten-minute break. We'll have a ten-minute break, and we'll hopefully return in ten minutes. Okay. Uh, yes, we're back on. We're back on. Well, um, this is an interview in two parts, and this is the second part. Uh, so thank you everybody I, uh, for um, enjoying your dessert and uh, thank you for, for also paying attention through to us when we come back on. Um, we're going to just move on, if that's all right with everybody, with the interview. Um, and I wanted to ask Bob about the, the chances of Australia becoming a kind of carbon um, pariah because we have the EU at the moment making quite serious noises about putting tariffs on those countries that don't uh, carry their... Well, basically, I think they're saying that don't have some sort of carbon uh, price, price on carbon. What do you think... Will they have an effect on what Australia does? And what, what, is that a useful thing for the EU to do? Is this, a, is this a sign of hope, if not for Australia, but for the world? Well, the first thing is that the EU is not doing that to punish Australia. It's, it's doing it to overcome the disadvantage of the manufacturers in the uh, European Union who will be paying a carbon tax. And those manufacturers are saying, why should we compete with the very same goods coming out of Australia that don't have that tax on them? And a reasonable government's going to say, I'm going to do what I can to make sure we don't make this tax, which is meant to benefit our community, actually closing down our factories. So they're going to put on a, a tariff on Aust the same goods coming out of Australia, and it'll be a higher tariff than uh, the carbon tax. But that's been threatened for at least a decade, in my recollection. The Biden administration in the United States is now saying that they're looking at doing exactly the same thing. And uh, there's been talks with our Prime Minister and both uh, and, the, and his ministers and uh, both the EU and other countries, including the United States, they know it's coming, but um, they don't know how to handle it. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, our, our government uh, has no excuse on that. They are, are making Australia an international delinquent. And uh, the very fact that the Adani coal mine is going ahead, uh, not um, just because uh, Adani's at the same time uh, contracting with the generals in Myanmar and is uh, bulldozing forests of the, um, the poorest people in Gond the Gond people from whom the name Gondwanaland comes in central India 
and is destroying elephant and tiger habitat, uh, strip, strip mining for coal there, and has rapidly, uh, with Mr Modi, become the second richest person in India, and that's saying something. Um, our governments are simply under the sway of such people, such um, profiteers who don't care socially or environmentally about what's happening down the line. And there comes a, a, a check-up on that. Europe, uh, um, yes, is going to impose a tariff on us if we don't have a, carbon, a similar carbon trading system. But our government's not likely to ta put, bring one in, so it's going to be something we'll watch in the next uh, couple of years unfolding. But Australia won't come out of it well. And it'll come out of it even worse if China finds that it can get iron ore from elsewhere uh, than Australia and starts imposing its own levies on Australia as a environmental delinquent when it comes to the climate emergency. So um, we, we've, we've got a lot to wish that we could go back to Julia Gillard's carbon trading scheme which put us at the forefront of the world, dropped electricity power prices uh, and stimulated renewal, uh, renewable energy at what um, Prime, the next Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who uh, tried to abolish it, called the Bob Brown Bank, $10 billion into getting solar and uh, wind power and so on going. And, and there'll be a wish that we went back to that and didn't listen to the um, forebodings of uh, the politicians of the time that we were, we were going the wrong way. We were going absolutely the right way. We are in front of the world. Now we're at the back of the class. And I see we're the 50th best performer out of 50 of the wealthy nations in the world at the moment. Uh, it really is a terrible shame that such an enlightened, wealthy and brilliant country as this should be in that position and we will be punished for it and we, d we shouldn't. But um, there's an election coming up in October, I'm told, opportunity to review whether uh, we put, um, we, we keep going with the same formula. That's what the celebration of democracy is all about. It sort of begs the question, I kind of get confused because we've got a situation where we already have a whole heap of tariffs imposed by China on everything except iron ore at the moment, though they appear to be stockpiling it, um, just a warning. And um, if we get tariffs put on us by the EU and America, and we have a government that always seems to be priding itself about economic management. There's a lot of doubt about whether that's anything more than a boast, but also keeps talking about jobs, jobs, jobs. Now, any government that was facing the kind of headwinds that you were just talking about, in terms of our future, who really cared about economic management and jobs and, you know, preserving the lifestyles of Australians and the small businesses that they often, you know, rabbit on about, even the tradies and their youths, um, would presumably be starting to think, well, shit, maybe we're going to have to do something different. Why don't they seem to understand? What is the, what is the blockage? What is the inability, the, the almost um, truculent refusal to get with the program? It's a very good question. I think the Murdoch media's got a lot to answer for in, in this. Uh, I noted uh, the, the, uh, the, Mercury, the Mercury newspaper in Tasmania is, is an exception to that rule. They're 
extraordinarily good compared, uh, considering they come out of that stable. But on page 21, down at the bottom, uh, on Tuesday, I think it was, was the story that the latest scientific predictions, and these are conservative, international, is that 94% of the Great Barrier Reef will be dead by 2050. Now that's um, a, a, a child at the moment uh, of th is going to be 30 with basically uh, the coral reef systems of the world gone. And I, I noticed coming down here from Perth yesterday with Paul, the massive housing estates going in on sand uh, along a coastal foreshore where there's already um, 250 to 300,000 premises that will be flooded if we get a minimum 0.9 to 1 metre sea level rise that conservatively is going to happen by the end of, is going to happen by the end of this century. And there's thousands more um, buildings being built in the same region. So we've got our heads stuck in the sand and, uh, and uh, we need enlightened people to come and help with that. And I think that's where the next generation is so important and, uh, and I think women are going to be incredibly important to that, Jane. I would note here that amongst the little sparks of hope was the seat of Clark in Tasmania uh, where we have five seats and each elect five representatives. It's a proportional, much fairer rep uh, voting system than you have here in Western Australia. But all five women elected in the seat of Clark in central Hobart at last week's election are women. So unheard of uh, back a, li a little while. Now that's not, women of themselves are not going to save this planet. Uh, well, Susan Lay, the minister against the environment, uh, exactly. gives that, yeah. But I do think that the whole of the community being involved is going to make it much, much I jumped the fence in 1976 and went and spoke to the Penguin Club in Launceston, a group of, uh, a club that was dedicated to women's being able to speak more confidently and they asked me as a local young doctor and I, I said I think it's time men moved out of the way and we had women rule the world for a century they couldn't do any worse I got no questions it was just total silent <laughs> what is he about so I jumped over the fence got on my bicycle and went home again but it, it's lovely to have lived long enough to see this change being part of and and uh, people like Greta Thunberg who would have been dismissed out of hand just a couple of decades ago and the brilliant young people uh, we have in our schools, and I've no doubt that's the case right here in Margaret River at that high school of 1,400 youngsters, the brilliant young people who are now determined to change things. And, you know, Jane, one of the things we as uh, an older generation have to do is give them the right to hope and the right to see a world in which they don't automatically become depressed. It's very important. It's very interesting you bring up the word depressed because it always strikes me that there's a lot of concern in all sorts of circles about the growth of mental health issues amongst young people. And it's spoken about as if this is a kind of weird thing and we need more counsellors in schools and, you know, all that kind of thing. But actually it makes perfect sense to be having mental health issues when you look at the kind of future. I mean, if just that bottom of page 21 in the Hobart Mercury saying that, you know, 
94% of the reef will be gone by the time the young people today are 30. Um, why wouldn't you be feeling anxious, depressed and miserable? Is it mental health issues or is in fact the mental health issues actually amongst the people who are stubbornly standing there saying, nothing to see here, we can continue to do what we've always done and I don't know, God will save us? Well, I get... I, uh, the most frequent question I get asked at schools is, Bob Brown, why aren't you depressed? And my answer to that is, well, I was. I spent a decade depressed. I mean medically depressed and I was taking uh, tablets for it. Because it was the Cold War, there were 36,000 nuclear weapons aimed at, uh, by America at uh, Russia and vice versa and, and the global guiding philosophy was mad, mutually assured, assured destruction. So don't we, uh, that's the only thing stopping us from putting our finger on the button and it just seemed a, a impossible world. And I got to see as a student uh, a film that was brought out in England about what would happen if uh, there was a nuclear burst over London. And, and the first instruction in this film was, well, pull the blind down. And I, I you know, it was, it was a, a, an absurdity um, that, uh, left me feeling depressed, but I decided in the middle of all this or at some stage that it wasn't a good place to be down in the dumps and it's quite empirical. I, I think, uh, well Bertrand Russell, you know, who led the Aldermaston marches against nuclear weaponry and nuclear developments in the mid-50s, said uh, that the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure now, he wasn't talking about current Australian politics because he's not alive anymore. He's writing this some time ago. The trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of self-doubt. Uh, well, my instruction if, if I, or uh, suggestion to the intelligent is get over it. Uh, it is much better to choose optimism than pessimism because it makes things work. And it is empirical. We don't know what's going to happen in the coming years. We do know that we can change it. And if you're going to open a sandwich shop, my advice, Jane, is don't say to the customers coming in, oh, it's tough going, I've got bills everywhere and I forgot to put my gloves on making the sandwiches this morning and, you know, it's just... Smile, say it's happy, isn't it a beautiful day, sun's outside, uh, would you like an extra piece of beetroot, uh, etc. And you'll do well. The same with saving the planet. You know, uh, we have a right to enjoy it. And I, I love the wit that's coming out of the uh, young insurrectionists who are on the move at the moment. Uh, and, and some of the... Uh, and the music. That, that anthem that the Nanas for Forest sang today. Just fantastic. Fantastic stuff. That's what happened in the 60s with the revolution of the time, the age, the flower power people, the hippies, the whole thing, it changed the way this world works socially and it did bring the environment onto the global agenda. Now we have to bring the environment into global action and I think this younger generation is going to do that. But I, I love being alive at this. I'm happier than I ever have been and I love getting young people, giving them a licence and if necessary, that means break the law. You know, Christ turned up the businessmen's tables outside the temple. Illegal. 
Gandhi ran thousands of people, walked with thousands of people in the march against the, the salt tax, against the Indian Raj. It was illegal. He spent years in jail. The suffragettes had their stomachs pumped after demonstrating in the Strand when they went on hunger strike. All these uh, people have brought the world a, a, a wonderful, real changes against the laws of the time. Now, we can't take the law uh, lightly or I'm the son of a policeman and I've got four uncles who are police and all my siblings were in the police. I didn't make it. I had some varicose veins courtesy of my mother. <laughs> but uh, one has to observe the greatest law of all, which is the law of life surviving on this planet, the laws of nature. And where they're infringed, we, are, uh, we have to use our evolved or if you like god-given intelligent to make a stand against that and i'm right if i've got one book left in me jane it's uh, it's going to be called defiance and it is standing up for common sense on a planet that badly needs it please write that book <laughs> i think it'd be great now to throw the conversation open to you guys with questions. We have a hand up over here already. So is there a roving mic or are you just going to have to yell? I think you might just have to yell. I'll repeat the question. Okay, I've got a two-part question. One is, could you please give us the Okay, I'll try to repeat that question, but I'll probably summarise it if you don't mind. The first one is, what's happening with Adani? Is there any hope of stopping it or is it a fait accompli? Uh, the second is, what are the key uh, specific things that we could do in Australia uh, to make a difference? On the first, go to Scott Ludlam. You remember he was a Green Senator for Western Australia. Uh, he's written a brilliant piece on Adani. If you go to Stop Adani you, and Scott Ludlam, you'll find that there just this week on why it is going to be stopped. But um, the question is when. It will become a failed asset. What, what, what I've read today is that the main construction company who's building the railway for Adani uh, and, and the works for Adani is not insured. They can't get insurance. So they're working without insurance and the workers need to know that. Uh, Adani is a will become a, a stranded asset. The question is how soon and, and the fact is that we have a job on our shoulders to keep campaigning against it to make it um, the, the sooner because the sooner the better. What was the second question? Uh, what are the specific... What can we still uh, fix? Look, if you want to... I, I'm, I'm uh, biased here but if you want to uh, do something that you can enjoy doing. Um, just go into the natural forests of southwest Western Australia amongst the, the, the great uh, forest estate on the planet. Uh, enjoy it. Go down to see that um, tree which is one of the 
uh, tallest in, in the world, a flowering tree which is about to be, which is now threatened by a dam which is going to be put on a, on a river to feed crops downstream. Uh, go, and, go and spend, uh, take a tent and spend a night in the forest and listen to the owls and the, uh, the cockatoos and the scurrying of things on the floor and come back and if you've got time join the wafer or the nanas or whoever it is that's fighting for the forest and if you haven't fund them uh, and, it, and um, I mean tithe, tithe income to the, the planetary environment. Always look at something that's local. It's better. It's better to. Um, uh, it's much easier to handle. We, like New Zealand, did in 2002. Now that's 19 years ago. Should end all native forest logging in Australia. Full stop. It's it's time it was over. Yes, lady here. Hi. Hi. Can I just repeat some of that question for the people over here who probably didn't hear it? Um, the question was basically about ethics and how can we deal with people, for example, she, the lady used the um, example of uh, people in Korea and China who can clone you, clone a dead child, clone your dog or whatever, and they were asked about the ethics of this and they said, oh, we don't care about ethics. How and she made the point that we seem to have a government that's not terribly interested in ethics either, not in any direction by the look of it, um, not just the environment, but a whole lot of other areas as well. Hello, Andrew Lemming. Um, and then uh, what do we do when we're dealing with people who just don't seem to, and I'm quoting here, give a fuck? <laughs> Whatever that means. Um, I recently wrote to the New York Times and my local Mercury about Elon Musk's line of satellites coming across uh, and the, by the time we finish there's 1500 of them going to be marching across the sky every night. You, it, we are losing in our time the ability to look at a natural light, um, night sky and we're robbing our grandchildren and, and those who come after us of that with no debate and no discussion. Neither newspaper printed the letter either. They thought, here is a loon from somewhere out there to worried about how the night sky looks. Oh, well, you know, I, I like poetry. And, <laughs> and it's very, very important. But ethics 
is at the centre of this. And there is a problem here which relates to that quote I gave from Bertrand Russell about the cocksure being in charge. And, and they don't have the ethical basis of those who are thinking a lot. But it is incumbent upon us who think a lot to get active. And the motto of my foundation is don't get depressed, get active. And uh, it, it really is very, very important. And it's very hard to know how to get active. But whether it's writing to the newspaper or saying to your local politician, I want to talk to you about this, uh, or whether it's donating to the most active environmental or social justice cause that you know of, it is a very, very important thing to give part of our life to making sure that this human phenomenon on this planet goes on into the future. You know, just, just think about this. We are the universe thinking about itself. We are here and we are reflecting on what this is all about. That's the reality. It was encrypted, enfolded into the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. And how do I know that? Well, here we are, uh, the reality of it now. It was always the potential. We don't know what the potential from us is going to be into the future. But we do know we're now at a point of cutting it off. And we have to stop that. And uh, the ethic is to take the action appropriate to, to um, turning the way the world's going. The only thing I know about that is it can't be violent. It must be non-violent. And our folk who are sitting up in the trees in the Tarkine tonight as we're here are there because they're non-violent and they're committed to saving those forests. And we are, it is an act of effrontery and bravery and courage to be able to make a stand for this planet in an age where there's such brutal forces at work and such a lack of ethics. But um, there are good ethicists at work too. And really, uh, there's the big question of the age. Go right back to the growth economics and the fact that we have such materialism. The religion of materialism has us by the throat. And we have to uh, individually say, I'm going to end that in my own life. Don't have to wear a hair shirt. I'm just going to be happy knowing I'm contributing to the survival of this planet into the future. It is also, however, very important to take on the brutes. The, uh, on their own territory, to confront them and take them on. And uh, we tend, we've got to get over being shrinking violets. That is not getting us anywhere. We have to take them on. And so, for example, with the coming federal election, we will have people, wherever they try to make it secret, but wherever the Prime Minister, leader of the opposition comes, the forest destroyers, the people who want more coal mines, we will try to be there in Tasmania to draw attention of the, to the public. That, and we had a big campaign on buses in, until they banned it two days, it was too late before the election, somebody complained about it, simply saying about the forests in Tasmania. Vote for the forests, nice picture of forests, other panel, clear fell, burnt in, after it had been incinerated, or be part of the problem. Now a lot of people didn't like that. This is wedging other people. No it's not. We, we are at wake up time, and wake up means action. And I love being part of 
the, the, the taking of action against what's going wrong on this planet. And, and you know, my greatest source of inspiration here is the suffragettes. They, they were up against it. Other women spat on them. They had the Bible quoted at them, St. Paul at the front, all the time. The House of the Lord said, how on earth could you run an economy if women had a say in it? You know, I'm old enough to know when that was a, that was a, a, a widespread view held by very much of the, of, the, of the population. But they endured and they stuck it out. And then World War I intervened and most of them didn't see the change that was coming by 1932 when women got the vote in Britain and by then, of course, it, it had, led by South Australia and New Zealand, had um, come about here. These things take some time, but they don't occur unless there's defiant people in there who are standing against the tide for something that's ethically right. So it's a very good question and I think we just have to have the courage to act on the ethics we think are important. Take mm. inspiration to some extent from the Women's March for Justice, which despite the fact that this government is trying to pretend they've fixed they haven't, has nevertheless got the conversation in the Liberal National Party about quotas for women. I can't believe that we've actually got to that place. Yes, it is lip service, but it's actually being... That's a move. The point is, I do sometimes... Sorry, I yeah, shouldn't yeah. really have this opinion, but um, I do sometimes think on the left one of the problems we have is we won't celebrate our victories because they're never quite good enough. But actually we have to celebrate the incremental improvements that we make because that's the only way we can stay energised enough to keep pushing so that we get more and more and more improvements. So... <laughs> Sorry? Well, fortunately, there are a few more than are in this room who are still ethical people. Not enough of them in our parliaments, I think, is the problem. Who else has a question? Yes, the gentleman there. Oh, the Tarkine will, be, will become World Heritage and uh, the harder task is to return it to the Aboriginal people. You know, on uh, January the 1st, 1816, Mr Kelly and his whale boat round from Hobart pulled up on the Tarkine shore and they were confronted almost immediately by six Tarkina warriors who were entirely naked, blackened face, they were over six feet tall, but within 30 years they'd been cleared off the coast. Uh, they didn't... The, 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 the warriors accommodated these folk in, in a way that they had no idea what was coming. Um, and the Tarkine will go back to the Aboriginal people, but the current government has uh, been re-elected on a plan to open the coastal area to off-road vehicles marauding down through one of the richest Aboriginal heritage sites in the country. And we'll be, when I go back, we'll be talking with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre about how to mount the funding to put on one of the biggest blockades in Tasmania's seen, certainly since the Franklin, if they do that. We've had uh, people up in the forest, uh, Lisa Searle, Dr Lisa Searle, she spends her other half of her life in the Congo as a doctor. Um, she flies to, with Medicine Sans Frontiers uh, and, and her uh, band. Uh, and we have effectively stopped logging in the major rainforest for the last four years by simply getting in the way. But um, we'll see. Um, it's it's uh, a work in 
progress. We will get there because the jobs are in hospitality and in tourism these days. And only half of 1% of the jobs in Tasmania are in logging. 30% are in those two industries and, and logging pulls the job from a... Logging is an anti-jobs industry these days. It's a, it's a job shedding industry if you take the wider economy into play. So circumstances have changed and, and the Tarkine, I, I dare say, I'm speaking a bit out of school here, like uh, much of the west of uh, the unprotected forest of southwest Western Australia will, will be protected. It just depends on how active we are. Time for one more question. Yes, at the back. Well, my advice is to vote for people who are planet savers, whether they're, uh, you know, and the big parties are caucus, so you just can't win there. But uh, whether they're Greens or Independents um, or uh, other little parties that I see forming from time to time, the more the merrier. Uh, it's our job to give them the first vote. And that sends a message, even if they don't get elected, that sends a message to the, the next government, whoever it may be. We're in a, we're in a period of transition here, Norman, and... Um, I, I can, the German Greens are now ahead of Angela Merkel's um, Conservative Party in Germany in the polls as they head to an election later this year and it may be for the first time one of the major top five economies in the world is going to have a Greens-led government. Uh, in 89, yeah, when 89, when that first, they first got into the Bundestag, that seemed impossible. Um, and Petra Kelly, who was a formative member of the Greens, came to Tasmania and I went round and um, toured Tasmania with her and she saw uh, the uh, Builders Labourers uh, Green Bands in Sydney with Jack Mundy and uh, the women up at Kelly's Bush trying to protect, who came, did, went and spoke with this communist fellow uh, from the unions to say, please put a ban on, they're going to uh, knock down this very important piece of bush at Hunters Hill near Lane Cove and they did that and, and Petra saw this and took it back to Germany and uh, there, here was this new ecology party looking for a name and could see that the word green embraced social justice as well as the environment and so they became, they took up the name De Gruenen, the, the word Greens and the green political movement in 80 countries now came out of that, um, those events in Sydney. Not too many Australians know about that. But uh, it's got a long way to go. But if I, what I see in Germany is uh, what will happen in Australia a few years down the line, Norman, I think. And yes, there's up, there's... Uh, and I say this without um, any prejudice. If the Greens are going to flourish ever, uh, the fate of the planet has to be on the top of the agenda. That's just how it is. Uh, and for all of us. And that means looking after the planet means looking after ourselves. Of course, they're not exclusive. 
but being sensible about it. So whichever party, whichever future politicians it is who are going to do the right thing, they're going to have in mind having this wealthiest country on the planet per capita, if you take into account resources, taking a world lead in protecting the planet. And that includes its oceans, which are 75% of this planet and which are in massive downturn at the moment. So um, it's looking a little bit bleak at the moment, but don't worry about that, uh, you know. We've been in a pretty uh, tough couple of decades and I just think we're, I was talking about the young people earlier, I think we're at, you can, s the prodrome, that's my uh, medical school speaking, the early spots which say there's a change coming here, you better get ready for it, uh, it is there. Uh, all we can do is foster it and um, we're in a democracy, we have to respect that, uh, the people uh, are in charge and if they want to vote in more people who are going to wreck forests and dig up more coal and so on, so be it. We just have to do what we can as, as uh, action-oriented, uh, defiant folk, happily engaged in uh, speaking with our great-grandchildren mm. through the mind's eye. Put a smile on their face and you put a smile on our face as well. Can I just add something to that? I don't know if it's happening in Western Australia, but certainly in Sydney I'm aware that, inspired I think by Cathy McGowan originally from Voices of Indi, and Zali Stegall of course for Voices for Warringah, ousting Tony Abbott, there are now movements right across Sydney, uh, there's Voices for North Sydney, Voices for McKellar, Voices for Hughes, um, I believe there's a Voices for or something similar in Christian Porter's seat. So people are starting, grassroots community groups are starting to gather to put up challenges, primarily at the moment to Liberal and National Party politicians, but I think there's no reason why they can't also be put up to uh, Labor Party politicians who insist on supporting uh, planet-destroying policies. Uh, and it's, that gives me a great deal of hope. So many of these groups, I have to say, in support of Bob, are led and driven by female voters. So voices for the Southwest, um, anyone? I, just, just as a point on going into Parliament, I think everybody should think about standing for Parliament. It's our other democratic right and privilege. But I can, going right back to what you said at the outset, Jane, about coming out of Parliament, uh, out of prison one day and going into Parliament the next. Um, prison's a far friendlier place to be in. <laughs> I think we have to bring this wonderful conversation to an end. Um, thank you so much, Bob, for, for, for your defiance. Thank you, Jane. Which I think is inspiring and gives me personally great hope and sometimes I get gloomy too um, and worry about why the bastards seem to be in charge of everything. Um, and I would like to thank all of you for coming out tonight, for asking such wonderful questions, for caring, being concerned, and for being in conversation, as Bob so beautifully puts it, with your great-great-grandchildren too. 
So thank you all. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you to Fabulous Voyager Estate for this extraordinary evening, the wines, the food, everything else. Um, there's something about fighting for the environment in a very, very relaxed and comfortable and um, gorgeous place uh, that I quite like. Uh, I can't quite give up everything straight away. So thank you all. Enjoy the rest of the Margaret River Writers Festival and see you around the heart tomorrow. And thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jane. So that's all we have time for today. Please like, share, leave us a comment. We would love to hear from you. If you'd like to learn more about Bob Brown and his work, visit the Bob Brown Foundation at www.bobbrown.org.au. For more information on Voyager Estate, their wines and visiting the restaurant, head to their website www.voyagerestate.com.au forward slash restaurant. And you can find all these links on our Readers and Writers podcast page on the website. Until next time, bye for now.